0: now it's Gabe time Gabe Kuhn Gabe Kuhn was one of the great little trivial nuggets in all of football bios his grandfather was the inventor of the easy bake oven like a boss the best lineman on the radio well the only lineman on the radio it's Gabe time game time we're ready the Gabe Coon show 92.9 FM
1: ESPN Hope everybody's having a good Tuesday out there. It's August fifteenth, twenty twenty three, and welcome in to the Gabe Coon Show. I am your host, former Memphis Tiger offensive lineman Gabe Coon, on Twitter on X at g underscore coon seventy one. Alongside me is the executive producer of the Gabe Coon Show. That'd be Connor Dunning at c dunning nine two nine on Twitter on X. Connor, what's the word? What's up, man? I do. I understand you had a rewatch of uh, a rewatch of the Blindside with all of the. Uh, Tui Michael Orr news, huh?
2: Oh, yeah. So it's, uh, I did, I did the, the Memphis public, a, a service by rewatching The Blind Side so that everybody doesn't have to. It's not all to. bad.
1: It's not all bad. It's mostly bad. Mostly. It's not all bad.
2: <laughs> it's, here, here's what I'll say. Um, you know, I don't want to spoil it. We'll talk about it, you know. We'll talk about it tomorrow. We'll talk about it tomorrow. Right. We'll have a full breakdown tomorrow of, uh, The Blind Side Revisited.
1: Yep. Now, um, and we'll have a full breakdown of the Tui's response through their, uh, through their attorney, their attorney Marty Singer has given TMZ Sports a story that is just not fun. It's just not fun to deal with litigation between two sides that were supposed to be termed family this whole time. Michael Orr has made his accusations, and now the Tui family is making equal, ugly accusations toward Michael Orr. It's hard to pick sides right now, right? Like, it's just so hard to pick sides. You have to see, you see more details come out. I'm not ready to drag anybody through the mud at this moment, but it is just it is frustrating to see how this is uh, this inspired. We'll get to that in just a moment. Grizzlies in-season tournament schedule. The in-season tournament schedule has been released for just about everybody, so we'll get to that at some point during the show. Um, still not a big fan of the in-season tournament, but uh, we'll see how it all works out. There's going to be, obviously, the group stage. They have the group stage. All uh, figured out. Then they're going to dwindle it down to eight teams for the knockout stage. Um, And there is three separate groups for the West and for the East. We'll break that down uh, at some point during the show. Also, um, we have some NFL news. Anthony Richardson, number 4 overall pick to the Colts, has been named the starter for the Colts. They have named him the starter after one week of preseason where he threw a pick and didn't look all that well. Uh, I think there's a lot of people with a, a, a group thought out there that he needs to get those reps in year one with the Colts. I tend to uh, – I don't subscribe to that group thought. I, I have I've made it known on this show before, but I'll, I'll give you my reasoning behind it around 6 o'clock, as well as Dalvin Cook is a Jet. Dalvin Cook, one-year, $8.6 million deal to join the New York Jets. They're as star-studded as I've ever seen them, Connor. This is This is unbelievable. The roster they've put together – is fantastic now. That old line still has to be good, but um, if they can get that right, that defense is in the in the right spot. They have a lot of weapons on the offensive side. I talked to Charles Davis about it yesterday, a CBS NFL analyst, and he he tends to believe in them. But that old line has to come along if they really want to make it happen. As far as the blitz is concerned, we have more James Harden news, um, and Michael Zilski of the Philly Inquirer has has provided more detail as to why James Harden is so peeved, why he is so angry, why he went uh, over to China in front of a, uh, a bunch of kids at a charity event and said that Daryl Morey's a liar and I'll never play for him. So he, he's, he's added more detail. We'll get to that in the Blitz. Uh, as far as guests are concerned, Jeff Calkins at 5 per normal. We'll talk to him about the Michael Orr situation. Of course, he, he discussed with Sean Tui yesterday, and Sean Tui said he was hurt and everything else. Um, So we'll talk with Jeff at 5 o'clock, Jeff Calkins Show, Daily Memphian. And then 4.30, brand-new beat reporter for the Memphis football team for the Commercial Appeal will join us, Jonah Dillon. Jonah Dillon making his uh, debut on the show here at the bottom half of this first hour, so that will be fun. No, it's not fun, though. We have to start with some pretty tough news. Um, Reports came out yesterday that at 28 years old due to a motorcycle wreck, Alex Collins, running back for the Seahawks, uh, former running back for the Arkansas Razorbacks. He's passed away at age 28 due to a motorcycle wreck. And I I just got to say, Connor, Arkansas has gone through it. They've gone through it. Ryan Mallett passed away way too early. Peyton Hillis had his close call recently. We had the Deion Stutz situation. He was committed uh, out of MUS as a defensive tackle to Arkansas. He's passed away. Prayers for the Arkansas family, man. They're dealing with a whole lot. And Alex Collins... It's tough to see. I mean, he was in he was in Memphis this year for the USFL. He was he was running back. I remember him throwing that TD pass on sort of the the halfback pass there on the goal line. Had a couple of highlights here, but gone way too soon. 28 years old. Alex Collins has passed. Our prayers go out to the Arkansas family and the family of Alex Collins. Ultimately, um, now yesterday we talked about Michael Michael Orr and uh, the petition he filed in a Tennessee court about not getting money for the blind side. <laughs> I mean, it, 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 was, it was insane to think that the subject of a $300 million biopic did not make money. But today, the Tui family lawyer has given TMZ Sports a full report about Michael Orr's attempted shakedowns over the years. The Tui family says before Michael Orr made outlandish, hurtful, and absurd claims, they, saw, they called them outlandish, hurtful, and absurd claims, um, before he made those, uh, those claims about them in court on Monday, he supposedly, allegedly, tried to shake them down for $15 million. Supposedly. Marty Singer, the Tui family attorney, said it all happened recently. And what's worse, he claimed that this is not the first time Orr has done this. He said in a lengthy statement to TMZ Sports that Orr came to the Tui's prior to filing his 14-page petition in Shelby County, And threatened them saying if he didn't, if they didn't pony up an eight figure check, $15 million, he'd plant a negative story about them in the press. Singer then denied all allegations in Orr's court filing, explaining that Sean and Leanne Toohey absolutely did not trick Michael Orr into getting into a conservatorship when he was 18 years old, as he had claimed. He also claims conservatorship was established to assist with Mr. Orr's needs, ranging from getting him health insurance and obtaining a driver's license to helping with college admissions. Uh, He went on to say, should Mr. Orr wish to terminate the conservatorship, either now or at any time in the future, the Tui's will never oppose it in any way. He needs to get out of there, conservatorship. There's no question about this. But uh, over all of the uh, back and forth mudslinging, um, clearly Michael Orr, Uh, The Tuie's view Michael Orr's allegations as ugly, and they're going to get ugly in response to his allegations. What really bothers me about this is this was supposed to be a family unit. This was supposed to be a family that was put together. This is depressing. It's sad. It's very sad. I mean, this movie and and, and how it captivated the country, the story of Michael Orr during the NFL draft and uh, how the Tuohys helped him out throughout the entire process – it's all ending in litigation and back and forth mudslinging, trying to drag each other um, the entire time. I am, uh, I'm frustrated by this. It's hard to pick sides at this given moment. I know there's, there's a, a tendency to lean to Michael Orr's side because of uh, what happened through his childhood um, and, and, and the fact that he's been in a conservatorship this entire time and the twoies seem to misrepresent that in saying that he got adopted in the movie, in a book, and all that. Um, it's hard to pick sides, though, because I I think both sides in their own way seem to be trying to reel, and and both sides seem to be in their own way a little bit wrong for what has transpired.
2: Yeah, it's unfortunately getting very messy, and I agree with you, and I think that's why kind of yesterday we were saying that the situation really just makes you feel a bit gross um, without having to really pick sides, but at the end of the day, you know, like I said, I am rewatching the movie right now, and I still have a little bit to finish, but I understand why so many people, you know, enjoyed the story and it being uplifting and, and things like that, and to have it kind of come out that a lot of it was false or not true, it I think that people feel like that they're losing a good story that they could look up to, but at the end of the day, these are real people dealing with real situations, and it is really complicated, it's really nuanced, and it's messy. You know, it's one thing, though that I'm not sure I like that Singer said mm-hmm. about the Tui's is the notion that a couple worth hundreds of millions but, of dollars would connive to withhold with a few you. thousand dollars. I'm not sure that matters. I don't I, care. I, I'm, the, the idea that they can, they're, they're continually pushing this idea that the Tui's so had all rich, this money, so why would, they do, so this? Why would the, they do this? That's not really a defense to me. One thing I did notice from these comments, too, is there's not really a denial of some of the things. It's yep. very interesting. It's, it seems like that they are really hitting on the fact that they did not trick Michael into a conservatorship. And I'm not sure I believe they did trick him into it. I tend to believe that they went into it with good intentions. They yeah. believe that it could benefit Ole Miss football in a way. I think that it's a bit naive to, to think that they didn't have that thought process. When you get into the actual story of things that went down, I believe there was a certain point where the family realized that they could make some money off of this situation, and then things get a little messy there. Yes. That's where I think that things yes. get extremely like messy. Like I said, yes And that's why Orr's petition is about the monies made from the movie. A lot of what this statement said has to do deal with things before that about them tricking him into the conservatorship and things like that. I don't think that they intentionally tricked him to take advantage of him. Now, did they take advantage of him being in that situation later on? Maybe. that We will have to wait to see. And that's where, ultimately, there are claims of, you know, A trust being paid and them trying to pay Michael it being split five separate ways. If those things are true, we will get those documents. You will see those numbers. That will come to light. I don't know who to believe yet in this situation. To be quite honest, it's fully possible that both that both parties are in the wrong here. And he was taken advantage of, but he has been trying to get money from them. Again, though, I think it's a gray area because is it a true shakedown if you're trying to get money that you believe you are owed? That's why if there are text emails Voice ma- mails, things him like that, bring them to light. Because we need to see things that have been said, the deals that have been struck, things like that moving forward. Because if they had a deal and they had paid Michael money, why not just release that information now?
1: Now... I, like I said yesterday, I think intentions can be pure in the beginning, but right. things change when money's on the table, and that's a not lot for of everybody, but this is a lot of money that's a been lot on money. the table. Now, Sean Jr., SJ, has, has basically gone to Barstool and said he got 2.5%, $250,000 up front. He's made sixty to seventy grand the past four to five years off of the movie, so most of what Sean Tui said yesterday has been completely negated by by SJ, by Sean Jr. And Sean Jr. also said yesterday that he gets why Michael Orr is mad in this situation. He, he thinks it's understandable. So like they, it seems like there's a little bit of back and forth within the family as well about how, how all this is going. The one thing, though, that Marty Singer, the attorney of the Tuohys, has, has said that is, is completely false is the main sort of deal, the main issue— with Michael Orr not making money off of the blind side, the claim that's being made by the Tuies and Marty Singer is that they did split it up five ways. Michael Orr did get his share, but it's been put in a trust account. So if that is true, you you do have questions about why does he not have uh, access access to said trust account? Why does he not know about this at the current moment? All these details need to be ironed out. And the fact that we have Michael Lore and the twoies in litigation after a 2009 movie that just swept the nation, that, that brought everybody to their knees, that was almost a tearjerker in, in, in some ways, it's just depressing. Now, um, that is, though, if, if true, what Marty Singer's saying, if, if there is a trust account with Michael Orr's money in it, Um, that that completely defeats everything that Michael Orr has has said about not making a cent off of that movie. But the fact that he hasn't seen a cent of that movie and it is isn't tied up in a trust account is kind of sketchy and and bizarre in its own right. And that's where
2: this gets extremely confusing and why I am saying that I hope that we get a timeline of the agreements, the deals that were made, and things like that. Because one of the things that I do think is suspicious... Is the family did have separate entertainment agents yes. than Michael did. Michael's was the family There's a lawyer, lot of things suspicious. Which is about odd. This. It's the same person that made that put up the document for the conservatorship and all of that stuff. So there are still a lot of details I feel that need to come to light. To your main point though, this is really sad that it is happening in the public eye. This yep. does feel like something that could have been solved behind closed doors. And, you know, this is a story that is there are a lot of problems with this story. There are a lot of problems with the movie that I'll dive into tomorrow. But when you just look at kind of the the core of this, it is a good story about people that helped someone in need, and you want to believe the fairy tale yep. ending of The Blind Side. But you it, want to believe the good, there. the good of humanity and people. And when it is revealed that it is not there, when you see the odds behind the curtain, it is tough to let that go. It is tough to deal with that realization that, damn, this... This moment of human good has been once again poisoned by money, and it's yep. it's unfortunate that we're having to deal with another story like this. That it that it's falling, if if that makes any Something sense. Something
1: that I continue to struggle with, though. Um, Michael Orr claims that he didn't know it was a conservatorship until February of 2023. The Tuie's, the public, people that wrote books, people that 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 wrote the movie, they allowed that false claim about him being adopted to be perpetuated all these years. Like that in itself is just very grimy, bizarre that this has been able to perpetuate all these years. Like that in itself just, just bothers the hell out of me.
2: Right. And and that's why there's not, I don't really think that there's going to be a good and bad side in this story because of little details like that, because is it going to come out? Because I'm going, I have no reason to, to, not believe michael that he didn't know that he wasn't adopted mm-hmm. but i also think that there's a chance that it comes out that he may have known you know yeah. what I, mean? it's, yeah, it's, right. I
1: don't know who to believe here fully it it's, seems I almost, like, it like seems, i need to see writing <laughs> it would seem pretty insane to go 19 years and not right. know your full relationship right. with so, the family that you have been 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 you hope by it's not this true entire time through your nfl career through your old miss career through your, your post career your retirement for 19 years, not to know that just seems kind of strange.
2: Right. Because I did, it is, comp. the one thing that the blindside movie doesn't do very well is it it glosses over a lot of the things the Tui's had to do in order to get Michael into Ole Miss and, and through the NCAA. I'm not sure those things required the conservatorship based upon the claim that they're trying to make. But a lot of it involved online classes, doing certain things, kind of being tricky with the education system that is set up with the NCAA. They found the loopholes. Did Michael know that he couldn't be adopted at that time to allow those things to happen? Or did he, or was he truly under the idea that it's the same thing as adoption? Right. I, because I will say, doing the research on the movie and, and fact-checking things here and there... I also read and listened to a lot of interviews from the Tui family. They refer to themselves as his adoptive parents numerous yes. times. Numerous times. Saying it themselves. So that's why, even if Michael had known, I still think it's a bit gross that they allowed the public to yes. have the idea that they fully and adopted I, and I, him.
1: I still stand by what I said yesterday. I wonder what type of litigation you're open to. Because I think, I, I, I was talking to somebody about this, there could be a level of... Uh, and I don't want to go out there and, and because I'm not uh, by any stretch of the imagination a lawyer, but it seems fraudulent. It Seems like there's a level of fraud in letting the public run with this all these years, and let everybody letting everybody run with this all these years when it was a conservatorship the whole time. Cool. And a conservatorship is substantially different than actually adopting someone. Um, the amount of control, um, the power of attorney you have over said person at a conservatorship is is not. It, it just it. You're allowed—you you you, put, you are in a position to take advantage of said person a lot more when you have them under conservatorship for 19 years.
2: Right. I, I fully agree with that. And that's where questions about the monies from the movie, the 2.5% deal, the upfront money that they got, is the 14K real, is the 225 real, is the 60 to 70 real? It appears that they are. It appears that all of them may be. And that's why it's so confusing, you know— and I understand why the why Tui's the came out today. You know, they, they're, they're going to throw mud back. They're going to throw yeah. mud back. I get it. They, they, and but here's I can't the thing. Here, help but, but—
1: But I have to say off top, you, they do have the right sure. to absolutely 100% defend themselves in this right. situation.
2: What's odd to me, though, is that the math still doesn't add up. Yeah. The math and, is and still not adding And the fact that you out. have
1: Marty Singer, their attorney, saying he has gotten an equal cut of every penny received in the blind side. It's just in a, in a trust account. It's just set up but differently. They also than the, claim than the, that they have the,
2: given him checks. So the children can it be both?
1: <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> can can it I be both?
2: I, I I also just feel like I have the opinion that let's say that you know they did the conservatorship and he did know. Let's let's just assume yes. that for a moment. Okay. Couldn't you still say that they treated Michael a bit like an object?
1: Yeah, yeah. And they you were like, oh, like, we yeah. have to
2: do this because we got to get him into Olmstead. That's still gross to me. Yeah, you know that's where. Not adopting him because you wanted him to play football for Ole Miss, which is kind of you know what they are claiming, is not okay with me. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line
0: is only twenty five dollars a month. New iPhone 15s. It's over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for twenty five bucks per line per month with eligible trade in when you switch. Americans spend 4.4 hours with audio every day. Oh, and you want the proof? Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com.
2: Hey still, yep. Don't. wouldn't that be a situation when you're like, listen, we really want you to go to Ole Miss and play football, but we want you to be part of our family more so? Mm-hmm. That's yeah. where I get that there, there there's a huge question mark there for me and that's why it's. I am not down with them claiming that they, they had pure intentions. There, I, I think that there's no way in hell they didn't do this knowing that they were going to benefit in some and, way. And painting themselves as people who did it out of the goodness of their hearts is just not true.
1: The other part of this is it's very clear that having a relationship with Michael Orr was advantageous for them. Absolutely. No doubt, regardless of intentions. And for them to sort of claim, I know that most of the arguments around the movie right uh, oh we didn't make that much money off the movie Which is just off not, of lore it's that not can't true, be true in itself but also what about all the motivational speaking events what about raising your 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 name and your 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 sort of likeness in the public eye the books everything else you've made money off of your relationship with mike lore uh, in the, in the large scheme and what i what i'll stand by is I, as as details come out I want to focus a little bit for me personally, I want to focus a little bit less on the legality of everything. And I want to focus on the moral justification for everything, because I think that um, based on what will come out, maybe, you know, the two were within their legal right to do what they did with the money from the movie, from the books, from motivational speaking appearances, but at the same time, does that make it morally justified? Not necessarily. We, we not at said all. It,
2: we've said it many times on this show, and I think that it applies here. Legality does not mean morality. It yes. is not the compass for morality. Just because it may be legal doesn't mean it's right. Yes. We, we see situations like that happen all the time. So that's why, public, that's why there's, there's going to be an interesting thing with this situation, I think. There's going to be a, a court opinion. And yes. there's going to be a public opinion, and I think it's it's extremely possible that those two opinions are vastly different based upon what was in writing here. That's what's this. That's what this is going to come down to. Yes. What was the paper trail? Yes. That's ultimately what this is going to come down to.
1: Yes. And I think uh, I think ultimately most people are going to take Michael Orr's side in this whole thing because of his past and everything else. Um, but we're going to have to see things trickle out and see see how this uh, how this all plays out in court. I, I also I will leave with this though. Marty Singer did, the, again, the ease attorney, um, he did do sort of the, oh, Michael Orr's got a book tour coming up. He's trying to right. raise the, he's trying to drum up attention. He said, unbeknownst to the public, Michael Orr has tried to attempt to run this play, trying to get them to pay him eight-figure you know settlements, uh, influxes of money before. Um, but it seems that numerous other lawyers stopped representing him once they saw the evidence and learned the truth. Sadly, Mr. Orris found a willing enabler and filed this ludicrous lawsuit as a cynical attempt to drum up attention in the middle of his latest book tour. So that's sort of the defense that Marty, uh, that, our, that our man Marty's leading on.
2: The twoies should have protected their blind side.
1: <laughs> I would also like to point out that
2: singer saying that they received a tiny percentage of the net profits – Tiny of three hundred million dollars. It's a lot. Okay, <laughs> a lot. let's stop. Let's not pretend like that tiny percentage is like a couple thousand dollars. It's significant money.
1: Yeah, but there's a, there's a lot of th- a lot of questions that still need answering with this with this case in particular, and it's just it to me, it's just very sad. It's just very very sad how this is all playing out. Uh, now, real quick, before we drink, bring Jonah Dillon on, uh, CA's new reporter from Memphis football. Couple things with Memphis football. Seth Hinnigan, watch list season, baby, watch list season. He's on the Manning Award watch list now. He adds to the Maxwell watch list and the Davy O'Brien watch list. So good for him. And also Jalen Allen. Jalen Allen, who was by far the most productive defensive player on that defense last year. Uh, five sacks, a bunch of tackles for loss. He is on the Lombardi Award watch list. Of course, offensive or defensive lineman who exemplifies the character and discipline of Vince Lombardi. So. Um, there's some guys, there's still some guys and some talent on this team that is getting some uh, some preseason hype. So we'll see what it looks like going into 2023. And I have someone who can help us uh, sort of create those expectations, figure out those expectations for 2023. And that's the new beat writer for the commercial appeal for the Memphis football team. That would be Jonah Dillon. He's next, making his Memphis radio debut right here on the Gabe Coon Show, 92.9 FM ESPN.
0: Guests appear on the Smile Center hotline. Now back to the Gabe Kuhn Show, live from the Service Master by Cornerstone Studios on 92.9 FM ESPN.
1: We have a Memphis radio debut on the way. How about that? Jonah Dillon, the new reporter, beat regret, <laughs> Tigers football beat reporter for the Commercial Appeal joins now. On Twitter on X at the Jonah Dylan. Jonah, how's it going, man? Good, Gabe. How about you? I, man, it's going well for me. So, you come to us from, you've been in Connecticut, you've been in Vegas as well, and you come from Northwestern. That's, you're a grad from Northwestern.
3: Yep. I've been all around. So, this is my my third stop out of college. Very excited to be here. And, uh, you get my first radio hit. Yeah. How about
1: that? Yes. Yes. I'm very happy about it. I got to say, um, it, with the with the daily northwestern that was that was some stuff that uh that was pretty insane what what all what all transpired this off season with the Pat fitzgerald reporting huh uh
3: totally crazy very proud as a former daily northwestern sports editor myself mm-hmm. uh to see the coverage that they did uh crazy and it seems like it's still going on every day if you go on x or twitter or whatever it's called now yeah, exactly. new story about some northwestern uh sports team and uh it's not it's not going well, I'll just say that. Yeah, I mean, it's strange to see. I, uh,
1: Pat Fitzgerald, I remember getting recruited by him and the, the, that staff coming out of high school, and it seemed like they had it all figured out. It seemed like they had it all together, but that—that that is a crazy hazing scandal that, that transpired there, and I, I, I'm, I'm amazed it didn't come out any time sooner.
3: I'm amazed, too. I, I think it's amazing if you go through kind of the timeline of everything that happened. It's amazing the reporting that uh, the students there did, and how far back everything goes. And now you see all this stuff coming out, and like I said, it keeps coming out. So, uh, it's a crazy story. Now you have been around
1: uh, this this Memphis Tiger football program for about what two to three weeks at this point, and you've seen yeah, some fall camp, weeks. a little bit of fall camp. Talked with uh, some of the coaches and uh, players and 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 pressers. Like what what have you what have you thought about your first few weeks? on the beat, and uh, what's your impression of this coaching staff and this team as a whole?
3: Yeah, well, it feels like this season is a big one regardless because when you come off of two six, and 6-6 six regular seasons, people are going to expect you to do better. Um, obviously, reaching a bowl game is, is good for a lot of programs, but like I said, when you come from that two years in a row, this season feels like it's really important, especially with the way that the AAC is now with a lot of those big-name programs gone to the Big 12. So mm-hmm. – they're excited, and there are a lot of reasons to be excited, but they also understand that this is kind of a make-or-break season.
1: Yeah, so I know after day one of uh, fall camp practices, Seth Ennigan says he feels like this is the most talented team that he's been around. Like, where, where do you stand on this? There's been a lot of transfer portal additions, and it feels like they do have a lot more talent, but getting it to gel is, is obviously the the key to actual success on the field.
3: Yeah, a lot of these positions, you look at some of the pedigree of these guys that are coming in. uh, Receiver, you look at Demir Blankton from Toledo, highly productive receiver. Kowski Dove from Missouri, legitimate SEC experience. But those guys have never played for the Tigers, right? So we don't know how it's going to look until they step on the field. And we can sit here and talk about it's exciting. And the coaches, of course, will talk about the the level of talent that they brought in in a lot of positions. And, and there's no reason that they're wrong about it. Like Seth said, uh, there's no reason why this can't be the most talented team. But it's hard to really project how those things are going to gel or even who's going to be on the field right away during the first game against the Cookman. But like I said and like you just said, those are the reasons uh, for optimism.
1: Um, when you when you look at how this team is put together, um, I have made the statement, having been around this program for a while and seeing the guys they brought in in the transfer board, it feels like the defense is going to be head of the offense. Does that sort of seem – to you to be the case, at least early, um, with, with, with where this team is headed. Year two with Matt Barnes, I thought he showed some good things as a defensive coordinator in year one. And the offense has a lot of new faces that uh, that, that make you at least sort of in a wait-and-see mode. That offensive line has to come together. But that defensive line has added Josh Ellison and Darius Jones. They have some returners and Cormonte Hamilton and Jalen Allen. Chandler Martin at the linebacker position was highly productive at East Tennessee uh, State. Um, and then also in the secondary, I mean, Malik is highly productive, uh, a guy in Simeon Blair who started at Arkansas and he was the captain at Arkansas, already the captain with, with, uh, the University of Memphis. Does it feel like that defense is going to be ahead of the offense to start this year?
3: Yeah, I think it, especially in just in terms of leaders, right? You've got Simeon Blair who comes in from Arkansas. He was a captain. People have talked a lot about that. And with good reason, he's a guy they're very excited about. And then on the defensive line, you've got Jalen Allen, who is obviously going to be one of the leaders of this team. Those are the two guys that they brought to AAC Media Days. He's back for his sixth year, and he's someone that people across the conference are expecting a really big season out of. And he's also somebody, when you talk to him, you know, I wrote a story about him earlier this week. He's clearly a guy who's a vocal leader. He's bringing other guys along with him. And when you go to look at guys who are transfers coming in, he's the guy who's going to tell them, you know, this is how it's going to be in Memphis, and this is how we're going to win together. So, I think there's a lot of stability there. there's obviously new guys, but like you just listed all those guys, you know there's there's a core there, and when you look at the offense we we've got question marks at you know receiver tight end, running back now, there's a lot of talent there, but there's a lot of question marks about who's actually going to fill those roles. so I think that totally makes sense.
1: is there any names uh, on the defensive side of the ball? I may have mentioned them already because I did sort of list off just about every transfer portal edition. Is there any names on the defensive side of the ball that the staff is has- uh, sort of picked out early in camp.
3: Yeah, we're going to talk to Jeff Myers, who's the defensive line coach, uh, later today, actually, and that's one of the things that I was going to ask him about. I think Josh Ellison is somebody, obviously, when you come from Oklahoma, um, you know, that's that's big, right? <laughs> Just right. anyone who's coming from from that kind of program, you're going to expect a lot out of, and obviously that goes with Simeon Blair. Simeon Blair has been the guy, and obviously, like I said, people have talked about him, but really every coach has been raving about him, about the quality of player he is and also leader. And when you have that pedigree, it makes sense. But he's the guy I think a lot of people are circling.
1: Talking with Jonah Dillon, the new Memphis Tiger football beat reporter for the Commercial Appeal. Now, you asked Ryan Silverfield um, yesterday about Tigers running backs. They have a bunch of guys. Like, they really do. They have some some guys that can do a lot of things in Sutton Smith, Bull Hargrove, um, Blake Watson. Then they have sort of those bell cow guys that could potentially be in between the tackles of Brandon Thomas and, and Jay Ducker. What did you learn about their thought process about how that running back room is going to shake out?
3: Yeah, I think Sutton Smith is going to be a guy that they have really high hopes for. We saw that when we had special teams coach Chris Waite kind of going out of his way to say, if we played today, this was last week, he said, if we played today, Sutton Smith is our our kickoff returner. And Mm -hmm. he talked about dynamic speed, and they just love what he brings to the table. Um, And when when I talked to him last week, and he was talking about becoming a more well-rounded player, working on pass protection, things like that. And so I think that they really expect him to take a pretty significant leap this year. It looks like it's going to be that situation where you've got Jay Ducker, you've got Blake Watson, and there's going to be some kind of rotation. Now, again, what that looks like, it's hard to say at this point. Blake Watson, obviously a guy comes in a pedigree, highly productive at Old Dominion, and they feel like they kind of know what they're getting with him. Um, And then, you know, you're hoping that these guys who have been around the program, like Sun Smith, like Jay Ducker – are kind of taking that next step to make it competitive for everybody in that room.
1: Now, the confidence level for this team in finishing games is at an all-time low. <laughs> I have to say that. I mean, last year, <laughs> looking at that Houston game, uh, having that lead going into the fourth quarter, you, you blow it, and it was 33-32. Two years ago, UTSA, they got off to a 21-0 uh, lead and just sort of blew it, and they were very close in a lot of games. Like, these last two years, they were 6-6, six and 3-5 six, and five in conference, but they very well could have been eight, nine-win seasons – if uh if this team could finish uh, i I know that that's sort of the motto for them in fall camp is finish what what are they doing? What has Ryan said that they're doing to try to uh sort of fix the problems they've had in finishing games the last couple of years?
3: Yeah, well, the first thing is they just talk about it, and if you walk around practice anytime every single coach, staff member, they're wearing shirts that just say finish on the back. that's all mm-hmm. that's there. So they understand this is something that has to be turned around, right? 0 oh, and 4 last season, in one possession games, and it's obviously easy to look at that and say, well, why don't you just flip those four games and then you're 10 and 2. <laughs> right. Easier, easier said than done, <laughs> but sure. but uh, but there's something to be said for putting yourself in position to win. So they obviously were able to do that on that many occasions last season, and so. When you look at you know, reasons for optimism, you can say, well, if you can turn that around, you already knew how to put yourself in position by being in those close games. At the same time, there's a reason why you go and forward close games, right? It's not just random. Mm-hmm. So I think it, it comes down to execution. Ryan Silverfield said the first day of practice that they're going to focus throughout training camp on really drilling on specific situations, things like when you have a lead at the end of the game and you're trying to protect it like you just talked about in that Houston game you know, figuring out how to win games when you're ahead, figuring out how to come back, you get the ball back, two-minute drill, something like that. So Mm -hmm. I think it it comes down to situations. And then, you know, hopefully one thing that he's talked about, Ryan Philfield has talked about, is having a really young team last season. And so I think the hope is guys have experienced those situations before. They understand what went wrong, and now they're able to fix it with the maturity that's coming back this season.
1: Now, Seth Hennigan's been on like a million watch lists. Um, and I love watch list season. It's my favorite time of the season. Uh, There's a lot of hope right now. Everybody's zero and zero, but Seth Hennigan, Maxwell, Davy O'Brien, and the Manning Award watch list as of today. How do they feel about his development in year three? I mean, this is a guy who um, is the, the lone sort of, um known commodity on this offense what's the thought of him as a vocal leader how he's developing
3: yeah i think we asked offensive coordinator tim cramsey about this and he said it's simple it's his football team that's it right so they're basically saying at this point we're going to turn the offense over to you we're going to give you more responsibilities you've been in this system you've been in this program and we have all these new guys around you. So we need you to be the guy to bring everybody else forward. And at the same time, we need you to take the next step. You know, there's a lot of good quarterbacks in the AAC. So it's a high bar, but as a returning third year guy, and he's still one of the youngest quarterbacks, even as a third year player, um, they really think that, that he's the key and he, and he should be. It makes complete sense to, to be mm-hmm. a third year starter with the same staff. Now, you know, coming in the second season, it's, it's big, and so the season, it's all going to come down to him. I mean, I wrote it before. This team is going to go as far as Seth Hennigan can take them.
1: Now, granted, I think that for him, getting some help from the run game would be pretty substantial. I, I Look at the last two quarterbacks. Um, before Seth Hennigan, Riley Ferguson, who I played with, got a lot of help from Daryl Henderson, Patrick Taylor Jr., Tony Pollard in the run game, and then, of course, Brady White. I mean, Antonio Gibson, Kenny Gainwell, Daryl Head, just you keep going down the list for Brady White. He needs more help from that run game. What what are sort of the fixes that, that, that have been pointed out to, to get that thing going in the right direction? They seem to have tried to bring in a couple of guys in the offseason. I know Chris Morris was one that he's not on campus anymore. He was a Texas A&M transfer. Um, but Xavier Hill from LSU, who, who was uh, looking to uh, start at LSU last year, uh, they have uh, Marcus Henderson, who's a local kid who was at Arkansas for a couple of years before making it here. What, what are the fixes um, to, to the run game to sort of help out Seth in, in, in regards to making that offense at least run a little bit more balanced than it has been the last two years?
3: Yeah, I mean, the obvious fix is is find an NFL-caliber running back or find four of them <laughs> right, <laughs> like Memphis right. had, right? Yeah. Um, so they're hoping that, you know, Ryan Silverfield said he hopes to have, you know, you don't want to just have one running back. You want to have a committee. But if you have one guy who's that good, you're going to give him as many carries as he can take. So I think the first step would be let's get to that level of running back and then you've got to fix the offensive line. You've got to make sure that you have balance. Right, you've got to make sure that you're taking pressure off of the quarterback with the run game. And that's not something that they've really been able to do consistently. So if you're looking at ways that Seth Hennigan can improve, one of them is being able to rely on a run game to kind of open things up, especially if these receivers that we're talking about that are coming in are at that level. So I think it's just about talent. It's about sorting out the depth chart, which is what practices now are for. And we'll kind of see how that looks um, when we get closer to the start of the season.
1: So you, you did have the conversation about Bell Calg versus committee with him yesterday. And he does say, you know, it has to be more by committee just considering the day and age of college football we're in. You need uh, a guy who can go in between the tackles. You also need somebody who could potentially uh, catch balls out of the backfield, maybe get split out. I mean, who? there are five guys deep, truthfully, that have decent production that, that you feel like could, could make something happen. But who, who do you expect to, to really show up? I know Jay Ducker's been getting a lot of the, the work in between the tackles, and Sutton Smith has been a guy who's, who's been sort of used all over the field.
3: Yeah, I think, I think Blake Watson will get a lot of work early on because, like I talked about, he's coming in as kind of a known commodity from somewhere else, obviously not quite the same level. But um, I really think if you look at what the coaches have said, they're really excited about Sutton Smith in terms of just his talent and his growth. And that's one of those things, you know, we saw what he looked like last season, but we haven't seen what the growth is. And a lot of guys can take a really big jump in that mm-hmm. offseason when you have that season under your belt and you kind of understand the pace of the game, and you understand what you have to do. So I think I would expect to see Sutton Smith playing a bigger role as the season goes on. That might look like, a, that might look like catching passes. That might mean returns, you know, getting tossed out of the backfield. I think he's a dynamic player that they want to use in a lot of different ways. I think Blake Watson and Jay Ducker, like you said, especially Jay Ducker, we know he can be used between the tackles. I think he will, um, but I think that's gonna that's one of those things that's gonna take some time for them to kind of sort out what the best path forward is with all those guys in that room.
1: Now, what do you think about this uh, this schedule in general? Like, how do you how do you, how do you feel about it? Obviously, first three games should be very winnable, and they ought to go three and O into St. Louis. Um, against Mizzou, but then Mizzou, Boise State, Tulane, at UAB all in a row. I mean, it, it, it can get tricky there in the middle. But what do you think about this this schedule as a whole and how they can manage it?
3: Yeah, I think when you look at those, those games in the middle, it's not quite the middle of the season, but the Missouri game, Boise State, and Tulane, that's going to be the season right there, yep. at least in terms of measuring yourself against the biggest programs that you have the opportunity to do so against. The Tulane game, obviously Tulane coming in as the defending champions in the conference, everybody is picking them to be the number one team this year, but that's a home game. That's a big opportunity, and if you look at the schedule, UTSA is another team people are really high on. Memphis doesn't have to play them, SMU and Tulane at home, and the road games within the conference are not against the teams that you would be expecting to compete at the highest, you know, for the championship, frankly, in the AAC. So it's manageable. Like, there's a lot of reason to think that that they can come out of this and be competing at the end, you know, whatever it looks like in the last couple weeks competing for the conference championship. And I think that's Mm -hmm. really important, especially the way this conference looks now.
1: Yeah, and Tulane, of course, picked at the top of the conference, but they were, uh, I believe, 24th in the AP poll, 23rd in the coaches poll. What's your buy-in level on Tulane? They lose Ty J Spears. They have a couple of defensive guys that are are off the board now. Um, But Michael Pratt's still there. Uh, Willie Fritz is, is is still hanging around, and he did a great job with that team last year, beating USC in the Cotton Bowl, in that New Year's Six Bowl, um, 46-45. What's your buy-in level on Tulane this year, a, a year removed from probably their best, uh, their best year in program history?
3: Yeah, I think they're going to be good. I, don't, I think last season they caught everybody by surprise, right, because they had that unbelievable turnaround um, from one season to the next. W- when you bring back Michael Pratt and you bring back – Really, a coach and a quarterback. I mean, that if you look at the other teams, that's why people are high on UTSA—a coach and a quarterback. So Michael Pratt is is being picked to be, you know, first team All AAC with good reason. We saw what he did last year. Obviously, Tajay Spears was unbelievable. So to lose him is is a big blow. But there's a reason why they're being picked number one. I think we'll see, you know, what they look like by the time they come to Memphis. But you really have to circle that game on the schedule because you get to play them here and even if they've lost games by that point, that's the team that you want to go out and beat to, to kind of announce yourself to the conference. And I think they're going to be really good. I think, you know, you look at these teams from, you know, a group of five conferences that do really well, and they end the last season in the top ten, and then somehow now they're ranked. They're barely ranked. And you see that almost every time. I mean, UCF, that happened to them every year when they were competing. So I think that's just a thing that kind of always happens. Um, but I think that there's no reason to think that they can't be up you know, in the top 10 by the end of the season.
1: Now, last thing for Jonah Dillon, Tiger football beat reporter for the commercial appeal. Um, I'll just leave it open-ended. Any thoughts on realignment and what the AAC is going to do? There's been some reports about four AAC schools jumping into the Pac-12 to keep them alive. There's also been some thoughts of an AAC Pac-12 merger, a Mountain West Pac-12 merger. Do you have any thoughts before I let you go today?
3: (laughs) I just think it's crazy. Every day it's different. Now we're seeing these reports of the Pac-12 or whatever Pac-4 merger, and maybe we got to start planning trips to Corvallis, Oregon you know, <laughs> next fall. Right. Uh, it's not Corvallis is beautiful, though
1: I-, I will say, Corvallis is beautiful.
3: I'd love to. I'm just saying, I uh, <laughs> not what I was expecting when I moved here exactly. Right. But, uh, I think it's crazy. I think, as I'm sure you've talked about, you know, Memphis has been trying to be on the right side of all this movement. And the, one of the problems is it's hard to even tell what the right side is because yep. the Big 12 was where you wanted to go, and then that's not an option. And now something's going to go on, maybe the ACC. So I think, look, something's going to happen. I, all I can say is I know what the schedule looks like this season, and after that we'll figure it out.
1: Yeah, and the ACC seems to be – complete. I mean, I, I, I don't know, but Stanford, Cal, SMU, it seems like that ship has sailed for the most part.
3: Yep, it seems like that. But, again, every day it's different. I mean, the, the day that Oregon and Washington went to the Big Ten. You know, we went to sleep one night. It was a done deal. We woke up, and it fell apart. And then two hours later, it was a done deal again. So uh, I don't know what to think about any of it, but it's always changing. And, and, you know, by the time I talk to you next time, I'm sure something crazy will have happened.
1: Yeah, and there will be a next time because this was a great Memphis radio debut. Jonah Dillon, Tiger football beat reporter, new Tiger football beat reporter for the Commercial Appeal on X at the Jonah Dillon. Jonah, appreciate it, man. Great stuff.
3: Much appreciated. Thanks.
1: Yes, sir. Great, great job. I, that's it's Well done for a well Memphis, done. Ra- Memphis radio debut. Well done. But yeah, I I, I, had, to, I had to end on these realignment conversations because it's kind of slowed down for a little bit here, Connor. I, I, the, the most I've heard um, is the AAC meeting with the Pac-12 about uh, a potential merger as of late. It looks like uh, Pac-12 Commissioner George Klyavkov is not going to be a part of those conversations and also... Um, the thought out there of four AAC schools jumping to the pack. And you'd have to imagine. You'd have to. Although it's not guaranteed because they haven't put out names, you'd have to imagine Memphis is part of those four if if, if they're going to jump to the pack and, and join Oregon State, Washington State, Stanford, Cal.
2: You certainly hope that they would be part of that four. It would be odd if they weren't.
1: Yes, but, man, I, I get surprised every day by these reports I'm reading and and a lot of them are just so unsubstantiated right like everybody's getting a bunch of info from different sources that have different thought processes about how the the end goal uh, what the end goal should be and they also have uh different rooting interests about where the money should be and how it should all work out i i do think that the espn contract that the aac has is more valuable than a lot of people are making it right this second and that 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 sort of partnership but who knows how that's, going to, how, how that's going to work going into the future. I, 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 I've been trying to keep up, but it is, uh, it's mind-boggling to try to sort through all these rumors and, and figure out which ones are correct, which ones are not. But uh, uh, we got to transition back into some Michael Orr discussion because uh, Jeff Calkins gave his thoughts today on his show. Uh, he obviously talked to Sean Toohey yesterday. Um, but we have the TMZ report today um, from the attorney. Of the two, saying that Michael Orr has tried to get a $15 million influx of money from them, and in response to them not paying that, he has planted, so according to their attorney, a story um, which came out yesterday where he petitioned Shelby County about not knowing he was in a conservatorship, everything else. So a lot of things to sort through next with Jeff Calkins right here on The Gabe Coon Show, 92.9 FM ESPN.